Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I got a letter a couple weeks ago that I wanted to read to all of you because I think it brings up a very interesting issue. So here's how the email starts. Dear Dr. Heacock, I'm a huge fan of your podcast and have just finished listening to your most recent episode, The Dark Side of Psychedelics. I found your interview with Devin thought-provoking and balanced, as is the case with all of your interviews. I appreciate your willingness to sit with the tension between individual freedom and access to psychedelics on the one hand, and medicalization and patient safety on the other. I mostly agree with your support of platforming harm reduction and safe underground psychedelic work. One issue I wish you had raised in your interview is the phenomenon of spiritual narcissism. The underground psychedelic world seems particularly susceptible to these types of healers the ones who have developed an inflated confidence in their own powers of discernment. When I hear your guest repeatedly deferring to her inner voice when making decisions about whether or not to illegally treat people with psychedelics, I cringe a lot, especially because she is a licensed professional who is elevating her personal ethics above the standards set by her regulatory board. It seems at odds to advocate for ethical and safe boundaries around healing work while violating a clear legal boundary set by her own licensing board a body that exists specifically to protect patients from therapists who violate boundaries. Thanks again for your incredible podcast. I appreciate how you take your listeners into darker psychological terrain while holding difficult and complex conversations with curiosity and compassion. Oh, that's a sweet letter. Thank you. And yeah, the writer brings up such a good issue. And first of all, I would say I have not yet done an episode specifically on this topic of psychedelic narcissism, because I think Laura Northrup did it so beautifully in her podcast, Inside Eyes. So for all of you who are interested in this, go to Inside Eyes, check out episode 16, which is called The Dynamics of Sexual Harm in Psychedelic and Entheogenic Spaces. It's just a must listen for anyone who's interested in psychedelic work. And I would also say, um, I agree with the writer that, you know, when underground therapists are isolated and necessarily kind of in the dark and separate, they can fall into their own kind of mistaken beliefs and hypotheses. I talked about this, I think it was last season, where I described one of my attendings in residency who would always say, if you go into private practice, be very careful because you're going to get wacky. You're going to start believing your own wacky ideas and making wacky treatment choices. I think what he was getting at is kind of what the writer was getting at here is that underground therapists are at great risk of just relying on their own you know, in- intuition and discernment when really what should be happening, I think, is what happens in both the Western medical tradition and even the shamanic South American tradition, which is that, that shamans apprentice for years and years and years with expert shamans and they learn from them and they learn sort of the ropes and the rules and how to hold a container and who's appropriate and who's not. And that seems to work pretty darn well, at least it has for centuries. And in the U.S., we have the allopathic Western medical model where, same thing, in a psychiatric residency, for example, you apprentice with both higher-level residents and very experienced attendings, and you learn to do psychiatry on the apprentice model. And I agree with the writer that there are definitely huge risks um, when underground therapists now are also siloed. And if they're not careful, they can easily fall into kind of believing their own self-justifications and rationalizations. So thank you for that letter. After our first season, Chris and I had a brainstorming session. And he told me, 
we got to do an episode on gender. It's such a huge topic right now. And my first thought was, great idea. And my immediate next thought was, oh man, I could get myself into a world of hurt on this. Because talking about gender, especially for me, a hetero, cis, white dude in his mid-50s, this seems kind of like walking into the flames of a conversation that I'm only just beginning to understand. I did tuck this idea away, however, thinking that if the right storyteller came along, that we should definitely explore gender and the psychiatric darkness that can accompany gender dysphoria. I knew right away when I met today's guest, Autumn, that we'd found just the right person. Autumn was assigned male at birth, but she sensed from a very young age that something was wrong. This is her journey through denial, awakening, and then transitioning both hormonally and surgically. Autumn brings a fascinating and unique perspective to this whole arena of gender and identity. In my conversation with Autumn, I try my very best to speak about the sensitive and personal issue of gender identity with thoughtfulness and with respect. And if I make any errors or offend anyone during the story, I want to apologize up front and I invite you to reach out to me and let me know where I went astray. Was there a time or age where you realized, okay, I am a girl, I'm feminine, I'm in the wrong body? Like, was it a kind of eureka moment, or is it something that just sort of slowly evolved over time sure. that you were able to put words to that? Yeah, I, so it was an unfolding over time, for sure. Partly because I didn't have a lot of information about what it would be like to be transgender, because if I had it would have become immediately obvious to me as a 13-year-old or 11-year-old or whatever that, oh, oh yeah, that's that's me. Hard stop. Like, there's no reason to believe that's not me. But I didn't have that information. And I also really started to fill out my faith when I was 11 to 13 years old, around in that age, and really strongly in middle school. It's really felt very strongly and at that time, there was a, a big push to, you know, to say that being gay was wrong and all that. And, and um, it's a choice. And so I really wanted to embrace that um, because my faith became very important to me. I turned to faith as a way to really help cope with my parents being divorced, my dad not being in my life, you know, a lot of different heartache and hurts that in the church I felt I felt acceptance where I didn't feel acceptance at home. Even if I was a little bit weird, as long as I said I was heterosexual, <laughs> they were okay with it. <laughs> and that worked for me for a while. During adolescence, are you, and going to church, are you trying really hard to look like a boy? Oh, yeah, of like course. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of the big moments for me, going back to the original question of w what was it for me? Was there any kind of snap your fingers, a eureka kind of moment? One moment was when I was reading my Bible, and this is after a period of time where my mom was getting after me for, quote unquote, walking around the house like a girl, <laughs> or being acting gay, um, and classmates calling me gay, et cetera, et cetera, and me being like horrified by all of that because I wanted to act out the part I thought I was supposed to be playing that my faith told me was where I was supposed to be, and not not really knowing where to put that reading a passage in, in the Bible where it talks about the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that was probably the first moment for me where I went, I am that. 
There's a line that says that in some translations. <laughs> In some, well, it's it's a whole list, but that's one of them in the list. <laughs> I just took that information and went, oh, okay, well, that's important to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so at that point, I was like, well, how do I, you know, then I went on a journey. Like, that was the point where I feel like that kind of started my journey towards trans denial for myself. Whereas before, I just kind of existed and floated through life. I think I was probably dealing a lot more with the trauma of my mom being an alcoholic and dealing with the, I would say at that point, mild abuse, it ramped up the longer, the older I got, the more the abuse ramped up, honestly. But even then it was, you know, trying to deal with that and find my place and figure out who I was, was kind of secondary to survival. (laughs) So... I didn't think about it a lot, which maybe was okay. Like, I don't, like, I don't, like, abuse is terrible, and it was not a good place. But I think it dwelling on it, I wouldn't have gotten the support that I needed from my mom. That much was true. From the times of, like, her telling me I threw, like, a girl, which I did. <laughs> I'm not even going to deny that. <laughs> and I wasn't hurt by that. Like, that was fine with me. I was like, yeah, and what's your problem? <laughs> like... Is that something that's bad? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, just it was weird to me that she would say that. And so, yeah, I would say that was a really huge watershed for me when I read that and felt like what I needed to do was really work hard to fit that male stereotype. And that was the beginning of the journey. So you used, you know, that Bible verse and you were diving deeply into your faith as a way to sort of shut this down. Right, exactly. Shut down this emerging feminine persona this trans thing like it's if you study it hard enough that's what i was told and i wanted to believe that because the church is the one place i found acceptance really i I mean i had family and my family was great and if any of my family members listen to this i did not not feel accepted by you Uh, (laughs) don't hear that but certainly feeling at home and in family and with people who genuinely cared and loved that was that was my faith community and that was what it was to me to be a christian mm-hmm. and so of course i wanted to, of course i wanted to do the right thing there of course i did because i wanted to be accepted i wanted i wanted that love and i knew it was freely available there Mm-hmm. As long as I did the right things, <laughs> which is, which I know sounds really cringy <laughs> and it is to some degree really cringy. And they would have loved me even if I had come out at that age, like the churches that I were, a par- that I was a part of looking back, I was really fortunate to be a part of churches that even if they didn't fully accept the fact that LGBT was a thing that people just lived through versus a sin, they would have come around me and supported me mm-hmm. and not shunned me like like happens in so many faith communities yeah, what a in our gift country that was. it was it was yeah, there's definitely been stories on this podcast where people were in churches that were very shaming and dividing and pointing out all the ways that you were not right but it sounds like your faith community was very supportive yeah for yeah. sure and i think they took pity on me to some degree because i didn't come with my family i might have had a different story if i'd come with my family but i was going on my own like i didn't have anyone around me it was just me as a 13-year-old showing up on the doorstep, and they're like, who are you? Who are you with? Mm-hmm. I'm like, nobody. I came myself. <laughs> how know? much were you going? How much of that attendance was you trying to 
fix yourself or shut this down versus just your love of being in a faith community and and Christianity? I, I think it was the acceptance more than it was me trying to shut anything down. The shutting down piece only came from the, the place of wanting to be, wanting to really live into that faith and wanting to do it well. So for me, it was about, it was, it was the other way around. It was, it was all about me feeling accepted and part of a community, part of a faith family. What about dating? <laughs> so during this time as a teenager, before you embraced um, who you were and what you, what you needed to do, uh, you were dating boys, girls. Girls, girls. yeah, <laughs> I was dating girls. Yeah, <laughs> no, no boys. Da- uh-uh. Dating girls, but maybe wishing you were dating boys. <laughs> um, I didn't really wish for anything. That's the funny part is for the most part, I think some people probably thought I was gay because I didn't really date at all. Like I had a couple of girlfriends here and there. I don't think I'm gray sexual, but I think I probably, in order to protect myself, I probably kind of crawled into that orientation a little bit because um, it was just too difficult for me already trying just to figure out how to act like a guy. (laughs) It was too difficult for me to really figure out how to date. Now, what's interesting about that is there was a girl that I started dating my junior year. And eventually in my senior year, I asked her to marry me. And then we had a long engagement, got married, were married for 10 years. Senior year of high school. My senior year of high school. That's right. Yeah. And we didn't get married until we were both halfway through college and more. But yeah, we had some kids together and <laughs> 10 years of marriage and she put up, she put up with all of that. <laughs> How far into that marriage did you realize this is not going to work? About three months. <laughs> no, probably less, probably like one month, but not for reasons why you might think. Like I realized that maybe we just really weren't as compatible as I thought. And I was pursuing marriage in part because it normalized me and it gave me a family. Not that I didn't love her. I definitely did. I was head over heels. But you can have head over heels relationships outside of your orientation. It's just when you get to the romantic side of that and the like, the intimacy piece of that, that can become really difficult. And it turned out to be the case for us as well. I felt like a failure because, you know, men are supposed to be like, really sexual beings, like, like really hungry for sex kind of people. And I wasn't like, it just like, I, I, I wanted that intimacy for sure. But trying to make that work through my body and my body parts was really hard. I was happy in many ways. And I was really satisfied with the marriage. And I knew it wasn't going to work. And about a month in, I felt like I had made a mistake. Mm-hmm. But then I just kind of went, well, I married her. I made a commitment. I made a promise. And I wanted to make that work. And it wasn't that I didn't love her. It just was 
obvious that it was going to be hard. It seems like once you become a sexual being, because that's already such a vulnerable thing to do anyway, but to be a sexual being, to be sexually aroused, to sexually connect with someone. And it seems like that would have to bring your, you know, body dysphoria and gender just to the surface. Oh yeah. Because you're getting aroused and you're thinking, I mean, I don't know what I would like to hear more about what you're thinking, but it just seems like that would be a point where you could no longer avoid the reality. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was, it was weird for me because I thought, okay, this is it. I waited for marriage to, um, engage in sexual activity And so here I am married. It's like, okay, now we're going to have this awesome, intimate experience (laughs) as most females expect is going to happen. (laughs) This just amazing, like mind blowing experience and whatever. Um, we're now we're together, (laughs) you know, and it didn't happen. And in part because I couldn't pull it off. Like I couldn't do it. And I think you couldn't get aroused. I couldn't, I was aroused, but I couldn't, I wasn't actually, I wasn't erect. And so mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Like it was really difficult. Yeah. My penis and I didn't really see eye to eye on things. Nope. <laughs> Not to be too weird about it, but yeah, like it was just so bizarre to me that I had this thing on my body that didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Was it like disgusting to you or awkward or ugly, or was it more just sort of confusing and non sequitur because i've heard people describe it different ways yeah i think i think people trans people experience it both ways and i think it really just depends on how much dysphoria they have to deal with in order to get through day to day my dysphoria was managed to the point where i could live (laughs) for various definitions of the word live and so it wasn't disgusting to me. I think the more dysphoria you feel, the more those things feel disgusting. And I I was always trying to make it feel more integrated, but it felt disintegrated. Like it it definitely felt like a non I like that word non sequitur because it it really just felt separate or otherworldly, like not a part of me. Mm-hmm. It's which is frustrating. It's like, well, this is my body. I don't know. Like, why does that feel weird? Is this a normal mm-hmm. experience? It's clear it's not a normal experience. At some point in the future, you know, she ended up cheating on me. So she, I'm assuming she wasn't very fulfilled in our relationship. So and this uh, whole time that you're, you're with her, eight years, 10 years? 10, ten years. So 10 years. Married, yeah. Are you starting to read or hear or think about this idea that maybe what's going on is that that you're trans, that that's, that's <laughs> yeah. the core problem. Yeah. So before we had kids, I don't know if it was Dateline. It was one of those, you know, news shows that came on. And um, we were married by that point, And I was doing a co-op. And this program came on about this transgender person that had been married for a number of years and realized he just couldn't do it anymore. And he was she and went through life and transitioned after 
she turned, say, I think it was, I don't remember her age when she transitioned, but they kind of documented the whole thing. And, (laughs) you know, I must have been at the edge of my seat, just absolutely locked to the TV because towards the end of the program, my wife turned to me and she said, if you ever do that to me, I'll leave you. And I was like, whoa. But then I realized how engaged I was in the program. I'm like, okay, well, I guess, you know, I guess you saw that. I still had this picture of a Christian marriage where you don't get divorced and all of that. And even through being betrayed in that marriage and that sort of thing, I wanted to see that work. But there came a point where it was obvious to me that it wasn't going to, and I was pretty hurt. There's a lot of things that she, for lack of better words, was subjected to from me because I was dealing with that and spent a lot of energy focused on trying to maintain my gender Mm -hmm. and make sure that that was acceptable and appropriate so that I could inherit the kingdom of God and I wasn't effeminate. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was still operating in that context at Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After I got divorced, I met another woman that she and I uh, got married pretty shortly thereafter. We've we've been together. We're still together. We've been together for 12 years. I think that's right. I think, yeah, 12 years. (laughs) We had a lot of successes, I would say. And uh, whether whether it was my career or we adopted some kids and that felt really good and I started running out of things to do to keep myself occupied and keeping myself occupied was one of the ways, one of the primary ways from high school on up that I used to really make sure that I didn't have to think about my gender at all. Like I didn't have to grapple with any of that. I didn't have to think about, you know, I didn't really have to like, I could self-reflect. I didn't have any problems doing that in areas that were accessible, but in the areas that weren't accessible, I was running from, you know, and gender was obviously one of those, right? And so, so I did everything that I could to stay as far away from gender as possible. And that meant working 24-7. That meant making sure I had 25 irons in the fire when I had capacity for 10, you know, being a good father, for example, was super, I mean, for lots of good reasons, that was important to me too. But one of the reasons certainly that I wanted to be perceived as a good father was so that I could be perceived as a man that was worth the honor of a man, even though I knew that I wasn't because I'm not. (laughs) When I came out to my wife, her first response was, oh, thank God you're not gay. By this point, I thought I really had the routine down. Like, I really felt like I was doing a really good job of acting the male part. Like, I wore the right clothes. I had specific safe clothes in my closet that I would wear every day. I was very rigid about those sorts of things. I had to be. Like, I didn't, that there couldn't be any chinks in that armor. Because as soon as, <laughs> and as soon as it actually did start coming off, as soon as, 
as soon as there were actually chinks in that armor, like it was a waterfall. What about sexually with your second wife? Did, was it different? Or and for you, you know, again, you are, are a sexual being, yet you're in the kind of right. the wrong body. I mean, did you right. somehow were you able to kind of stuff that down better, or did you suffer just as much in the second marriage with that? I think we clicked a little bit better, and so it was a little easier for me to shove that down. At first, especially, I think over time that became harder and harder for me, which was really hurtful for her because she felt like she did something wrong or wasn't attractive or anything like that. And none of that was true. And it was killing me because I'm like, I can't, I can't solve this problem. You know, like I couldn't fix it. Was it um, that you had sexual desire for her, mm-hmm. but the the plumbing was wrong, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. like Absolutely. So the desire was there, but when you looked at the reality of your body and how you function as a sexual being, it took away any sort of heat? It wasn't that it took it away. It was that it just didn't connect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to I had to have appropriate narrative to make it work, which got in the way of intimacy. Like I could have intimacy without sex, or I could have sex without intimacy most of the time. She felt like it was her, something that she did or whatever. And there was just no way to convince her that it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. It was just all my internal struggle around gender. Mm-hmm. I think my wife and I were really growing apart because of the intimacy piece. And so I was feeling more and more alone. I couldn't really forge good male friendships. And I was afraid to forge female friendships yeah, it was just a combination of all those things together that it just made it to where I was starting to spiral down more and more and just feel more, I wouldn't even call it depression. I, it was just kind of this, it was just kind of um, just darkness. It was just deep darkness. I wasn't even really very depressed. I was still like really happy and satisfied with a lot of things, but just realized something wasn't right. In the midst of all of that, all of those different things that I was grappling with that just felt like it wouldn't resolve, you know, years and years have gone by and it just doesn't go away. It doesn't get any better. What is going on? I finally was like, okay, I'm going to go see a counselor. I'm going to go figure this out. I don't know what it is, though. I mean, basically what what my struggle there was, it's like, I want to see a counselor, but what am I supposed to say? You know, oh, please help. My life has turned out wonderfully (laughs) and I'm really happy with it, but I'm really very sad. (laughs) And, uh, Oh, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. (laughs) Oh, one of the things from 12 step programs that I had learned about being around them and being in Al-Anon myself for a little while, little while was one of the steps is to take a fearless assessment. They, they call it different things in different programs, but, and I'm like, you know, why don't I just do that here? I don't really know what's going on, but something's not right. And of course, gender was not the first thing that came to mind. I was still in a place where I thought that wouldn't, that was off limits. And so 
And it was a choice. I was still operating from this context. It was a choice. So of course that wasn't on the table. Of course. And I'd lived in so many years of denial. Like there was no way that was going to be on the forefront. I just thought wearing dresses was just like, that was just something that was, you know, mildly provocative or perverted or whatever that people say it is. You know, so those are kind of the things I wrote that off as. I didn't really ever want to explore any of that. And I kept it kind of up on this shelf of queer, infinite queerness, shelf of infinite queerness, I would call it. Uh, Well, now I call it that. (laughs) Before it was just a shelf. (laughs) God forbid it be queer. (laughs) But um, so I would put, you know, that's kind of where I would put that stuff. If I felt like I wanted to wear a dress or buy a purse or I was interested in shoes, I was interested in shoes. (laughs) even even that was well that was something i totally engaged in anyway (laughs) my wife calls me a shoe whore i wear that badge honorably so but yeah if there was anything like that that would happen or i found a man attractive or whatever i had a shelf for that and i would put that up on my mental shelf so (laughs) kind of to some degree i got up the courage to go examine that shelf. That's really what happened there. In therapy? No, before I got there. Because <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to talk about. So this this kind of fearless assessment that I did for myself, was that was part of it, was just visiting that shelf and realizing that I'm not, I'm not heteronormative. I'm not, you know, cisgendered there's something different about me and I need to really understand this now. And then through therapy and, and just more self-exploration, lots of reading and that's yeah. the sort of thing. Can you say more about how that, how you worked through some of that in therapy I and mean, how did your therapist help you explore this question, this understand it, um, move through it? Cause it's a lot. I mean, you've spent many, many years, a ton of mental and emotional energy, just trying to keep this shut down. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that my therapist did for me was to give me permission to actually explore my gender. Like for real, not just, you know, and and be a good sounding board for me, like just to be able to say, I think this is maybe what's going on. And instead of saying, yes, that's what's going on, she would say, well, yeah, that that could be, could it be this? Would this work for you? Let's try this. You know, some of the things we worked on was early on was like trying to manage the dysphoria instead of hiding it. So instead of burying it, how can we manage it? But still, I kind of function through my day to day, you know, as a man. <laughs> and she helped me just try to explore that space. Or if I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Well, what are some ways that you could feel more comfortable in your body and take and help your dysphoria. You know, she, she and I would have those kinds of conversations. A lot of super practical helpful. strategies. Just practical strategies. Like how do you get yeah. through the minute, hours, and days right. with this dilemma? Yeah. Right. And I wasn't sure I wanted to live out. I wasn't sure that I wanted, like, I found a therapist that I felt wasn't going to be push me towards the Christian theology side of it or or try to do anything to convince me, talk me out of it. And I definitely didn't want anyone that was going to try to talk me into it. I mean, I was definitely still coming from a place where I'm not sure this is okay. And maybe I need, I don't know, maybe I need conversion therapy or something gasp, you know, obvious. I'm so glad I didn't, I'm so glad I didn't land there. Cause that was, that was definitely the wrong answer. 
you know, because there's just no converting this. Like, mm-hmm. it's just not, it's not something that's going to go away because I wish it to. I, I, I tried that approach <laughs> very earnestly. Yeah. <laughs> it did not work. Was it through the process of therapy that you decided to come out and start transitioning? Were those all primarily issues in therapy or did that come in other parts of your life? I think it was, therapy definitely helped. I mean, I, trying, considering trying to do social, just social transition, let's start with that. Like, and define, trying, define that, would you? Yeah, yeah. Social transitioning is where you dress, move through life, um, try to appear as the gender you are versus the gender you were assigned. That's maybe the best way to think mm-hmm. of it. So you don't, you're not taking any hormones. There's no intervention medically. You're just wearing dresses instead of pants or whatever, or you wear women's pants or different kind of underwear, whatever you need to do to feel more put together. Yeah. And that sounds like, I mean, Hormones and surgery are their own big steps, and we'll talk about those. Right. But the social transitioning, in some ways, sounds the scariest because you're like putting yourself out there early in this process, and surely people are going to wonder, like, what's going on? Like, what are you doing? Is are, you know, is this? Are you trans? Are you just play acting? I mean, I just yeah. it seems really. I hadn't thought of that. This first stage of social transitioning being maybe the scariest. Oh, I was terrified. Oh yeah. No, I was absolutely beside myself because I knew I needed to do it. I got to the place where I realized, no, (laughs) in fact, I need to live as a woman in the world. Like that's just what I'm going to have to do to just feel normal. And I hate that word, but that's how I feel. (laughs) Like legitimately, I feel normal now (laughs) and it's a good feeling, but yeah, when I got to that place, I'm like, oh, Lord, have mercy. What am I going to do with this? Because I know what those attitudes are. And I know what people think. And I know you see all the memes and the clips of people being rude to transgender people or transgender people having a moment, right? It's not sir, you know, and, (laughs) and just all of just really the social angst, we have a lot of social angst around transgender Mm -hmm. issues and transgender people and discomfort with that and feeling that it's uncanny. One of my coworkers, I have to tell this story, one of my coworkers, very, very liberal extremely liberal, like left of anyone else I know liberal. He, I came out to him and, and he was grateful that I told him and I said, Hey, I'm probably going to start wearing dresses (laughs) and skirts and stuff. Like sometimes I'm going to do that. He was the first person that you told. He was not the first person that I told. No, (laughs) no, he was not. But when I told him, and I told him that, and we shared an office, which is part of the reason why I didn't say that to everyone, but I definitely said that to him. 
And he's like, I don't feel comfortable with that. I know, right? (laughs) You just gave me this look like, wait, what? (laughs) That's not what I thought you were going to say. Right. I know. And I, of all the people in that, of all of my colleagues, he was the one I was least concerned about. And I was floored when he said that. And I thought, this isn't really a left-right issue. This is just makes some people uncomfortable because they don't understand it. And so what came to mind in my head when he when I saw his discomfort was I said, you know, there's that, that stereotypical picture of the big burly bearded man in a poofy pink dress, right? You probably know what I'm talking about. And that's the stereotype. I feel like a lot of people think of when they think of that. And I said, it's not going to be that. And is that okay? And he was like, we'll see. <laughs> and he was fine with it. But but it, God bless him. I mean, he was honest, at least. And and it really, it really, like, helped me understand that this isn't really a left-right issue. I mean, I know people want it to be because that really helps them understand it. Well, it helps them feel like they understand mm-hmm. it. Let's say that. <laughs> but it tended to kind of work out in public. And the more I got comfortable with myself the more it worked. Like I would go to the auto parts store to get something for my car. And, you know, the guy across the counter would be emphatically, sir, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of, instead of just thinking that they were addressing me politely, he was intentionally addressing me, addressing me impolitely, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and of course, so I got those sorts of things. I understand why trans, why my trans brothers and sisters and, uh, siblings get upset about being misgendered when it's obvious. And there are times when I've been deeply distressed by being misgendered. Like if I feel like I'm in a safe space, this happened once when I was in one of my doctor's offices where they're actually supporting my transition and I'm standing there with a purse over my shoulder and I've got boobs, you know, (laughs) by this point and dress very femininely. And the receptionist just kind of glanced over her shoulders. She was super busy. I even feel bad about telling this story. <laughs> but, you know, she just quickly glanced over her shoulder and she, and she said, I'll be right with you, sir. Mm. And <gasps> I was devastated. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it takes a lot to devastate me, but that was a situation. So if I feel like my guard's down and I'm in a place where I feel like I'm really safe and and I get... Like, I feel even intentionally misgendered or even just unintentionally misgendered. But it's, you know, it's just like, wow, Mm -hmm. it just sets me back. Yeah. say that for you and obviously it's different for different people but was it psychiatrically psychologically darker pre-transition and trying to stuff all that and deal with that or and or did it get darkest when you actually said no this is who i am and this is what i'm going to do i'm going to socially transition and then do hormones then do surgery because i could imagine potentially that 
all stages of that could have some really hopeless and even suicidal kind of times. The darkness shifted. I'm not sure it was better or worse, just different. So instead of the darkness being internal and something that it was like, instead of wrestling myself, I started wrestling other things. So it really affected our marriage negatively, for example. And we had a great marriage. And we still do in a lot of ways. It's just, it's been difficult because, you know, my wife wanted a husband (laughs) and I took that away from her, you know, and I, I feel comfortable using those words, even though I know for myself, I, I only because that's the way I feel about it. And that's kind of the way she feels about it too. And we've talked about it and it's not a very healthy approach. I want to say that loud and clear. That's not a healthy way to think about it, but it, It works for us because it helps us grapple with it. Really, I mean, she married me. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, and that's the thing. (laughs) Poor thing. She married me. (laughs) But, uh, and so it's just been a lot for her to process. So those are some of my darkest days because she's my buddy. She's um, my confidant. She's my lover. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's been really hard. Yeah. And you've already gone through the pain of divorce once. And, yeah, definitely don't and, want to do that yeah. again. So the darkness shifted there. And and I, I felt her... The other thing that breaks my heart is I felt her and saw her grapple with an identity crisis that I had in myself. So I transferred that to her when I came out. I didn't want that for her, but it, but she's like, you know, she had to deal with that. So I crawled out of the hole so to speak, out of that darkness, self-darkness, and she crawled into it. And so that was, so it's just a different, it was a different kind of darkness. I've been on HRT for two years, four months. Yep, that's right. Two years, four months. I've been out for really five and a half. So whatever that math is. <laughs> Roughly <laughs> two, two and a half, three. Yeah, yeah it was socially transitioned for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, maybe the first six months of that was me s- trying, to, trying to make it slow. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as slow as I like to believe. <laughs> it was kind of all at once. But I tried to definitely let the air out of the balloon slowly there. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, so I would say fully out for probably two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before I started HRT. Which is, it felt like an eternity. Yeah. The transition with HRT, tell me about that. Again, I recognize this, everyone experience, everyone has different experience, but yeah. you, um, you know, went from being infused with testosterone to female hormones. And in my experience, seeing that with patients I work with is people often start thinking and feeling and being very different. Yeah. I would say for me, the the difference, like, I mean, it was, it was wonderful to be on HRT for me because I finally felt whole like in a in an internal sort of way you'll i'll i'll probably say that word a lot whole because every step of the way i felt more whole starting hrt you know it wasn't like a switch but within the first month when i cried it felt productive for the first time ever 
And I felt like my emotions were real. And I was a very, before transitioning, I was still a very emotional person. Cry at beer commercials, like whatever, like it didn't matter. Like I was. Do you feel like you got more emotional or that, and or that your sort of emotional palette expanded? Yeah. So let's talk about that. (laughs) I felt like my emotional palette expanded and I got way less emotional. So I think some of the emotion was coming from just small ways of letting the air out of the balloon from pressure. Because once I let that pressure off and I just cried because of like real emotions, not beer commercial or whatever, watching a silly show or something that wouldn't necessarily isn't geared to make you cry. And you're just like, that's so beautiful, whatever. Like I didn't do that anymore. And a lot of people, a lot of people that go on HRT for uh, male to female transition do start having those kinds of reactions. Like they start crying at everything. But for me, I had already done that for years. I was an old pro at that. I felt numb. There was a place for a couple of months in there where I felt numb because I was having such productive use of my emotions, for lack of better ways of putting that, that it was almost like I just had a viable outlet. So my palate was enriched in in such a way where I could just let the emotions do their thing. Mm -hmm. And then it felt like the room got really quiet, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because I just, yeah, there was a couple of months in there. I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I feel completely numb. Mm -hmm. And that was unexpected. It was definitely not what I was told would happen. (laughs) But for me, that's what happened. And it had to do and now I just feel really comfortable with my emotions and they just happen. They don't get bottled up. Another thing that happened that's related to this was I would experience emotions weeks or months after the event. And I didn't understand that's what was going on. It took me a long time to figure that out. So if it was a really big emotion, sometimes I would push that down. And then a a week later, a month later, it would come up. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know why or where it came from. And then, but that's, that's when my brain is like, okay, let's deal with this now. After I came out, it took a while to get to the place where I would experience the event, have the emotion <laughs> and deal with the emotion all at the same time, basically. I mean, deal with it's a big word, but I would at least be able to acknowledge it, know what happened and feel it like mm-hmm. have within my body that feeling of that emotion. It took, it still took a while to get there, but that window kept shrinking more and more. So it went from a month down to a week, down to a day, down to hours, down to one hour, down to a couple minutes, down to instantaneously, like I think is a healthy way to deal with it. (laughs) And that's the way I deal with it now. And that was a process, but I feel like HRT really got me there, Mm -hmm. like got me to the place where I was able to really be able to do that effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a sense, you know, in terms of the expanding emotional palette and just the different ways you were thinking and feeling, how much of that was female hormones versus the absence or suppression of testosterone? And again, that may, oh. that may be impossible to tease out, but... Yeah, um, that's great. Well, I can tease it out because after I transitioned physically, my testosterone is completely gone. <laughs> Whereas I was only able to suppress it before. And I can tell you that it's 
I think with enough testosterone, you can get through any emotion without <laughs> without addressing it. <laughs> I I feel pretty strongly about that. I think I think testosterone does a good job of giving you the ability to really put your emotions into a box. Mm-hmm. And for better or for worse, I think there's a survival pattern there. I definitely feel like when I started taking estrogen and progesterone, I was able to have that enriched palate and I was able to I was able to deal with my emotions better. Mm-hmm. I think where the testosterone reduction came in in this part of the picture was definitely in turning down the volume. <laughs> mm-hmm. So instead of the emotions being like really, I don't want to say intense. It's not the right word. Darn it. What's the right word? Instead of the emotions being big, yeah, let's use big. Okay. Instead of the emotions being real big, I still get big emotions, but they're not like so unmanageably big. They don't feel unmanageably big. That's really what I want to say. And that changed after I got bottom surgery. Yeah. Yeah. talk about surgery in just a sec but i I want to ask another hrt question yeah for you did you feel more feminine more like a woman simply by doing hrt i mean you mentioned feeling more whole Mm. um and that may be different i'm wondering if yeah if that hrt started to restore you to the feminine to the woman that you always felt you were or was it that that hrt actually brought a whole new level of sort of gender awareness femininity that you thought oh this is new but this is i kind of does that make sense yeah no it totally does it totally does okay so this is this is um your question made me realize or or think of something Every step along the way, I had expectations. So when I socially transitioned, the first time, this is a really important story for me, at least. And I'll go back to your question. I I am answering your question. It's just going to be a little ways to get there. I apologize. When I first started transitioning and the first time I put on a skirt, I felt at home. And I felt like I had come home from a vacation. Like when you're gone for a while, for whatever reason, for months, years, and you finally walk back through the threshold of your home and you longed to be there. That's the way I felt. I felt like I had walked through the threshold back home. And it was a beautiful feeling that I did. I definitely didn't expect that. What I expected was what people told me about being transgender, which was that it was very sexual, that it was going to be very um, provocative for me or whatever, like, you know, or it was going to feel very different, whatever, uh, perverse, like you name it, all these sorts of things that people told me it was going to be, it was none of those things. And I expected some variation of that, because 
that's what people say. So that's what you expect. It was none of those things. And every time I came to, I'll call it a fork in the road where I made the decision to take the next step, that was always true. I had expectations or didn't, but whatever I thought was going to happen was vastly different and (laughs) vastly more shallow than what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Um, It was deeper and richer and more, I'll say obvious. It was really more obvious. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's not, this isn't some kind of game or uh, relief of uh, some fetish or whatever. It was, <laughs> it was uh, coming up for air. It was the next breath. It was something that was just a part of you that you finally got back. And so that was true when I shaved my legs for the first time. That was true when I put on a skirt. That was true with HRT. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't right away. It wasn't the first pill that I took or whatever. But in that first month, it was obvious. I didn't wake up one day and go, ah, I'm a woman now. (laughs) You know, I didn't know what to expect. I thought maybe it would make me feel that way, but it didn't. What it made me feel like was I just felt whole. I just felt like I finally got that next breath. Mm. Yeah. What was unexpected, surprising, richer, deeper about the surgical transition? Yeah. um, (laughs) Oh, I'm going to cry again. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, my expectation was is that I would just feel like I could maybe approach sex the right way, or maybe I would just have this, I wouldn't have this bulge in front of me anymore when I had a maybe a little bit tighter skirt on or whatever and have to deal with that or be embarrassed about it, which is a huge relief, by the way, that I don't have to deal with that anymore. But it wasn't really any of that. Like when the doctors took the bandages off and I was able to, <laughs> it's the first time I've really, really like unpacked this for someone else. Mm. Um, the first time that he pulled the bandage back, I was, I was just blown away at how normal I felt and how normal it felt for my penis not to be there anymore. And to, for me to have a vagina and I felt like a person, like it was the first time I didn't feel like an alien and I didn't know what that feel like. I didn't know what that felt like before. Cause and that's all you'd ever known. It's all I'd ever known. And so, um, I couldn't really put words to it until that moment. But in that moment I knew I was like, Oh, 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 I feel human. Finally. How weird is that? <laughs> you know, over over 40 years of life. And this is the first time where I can truly say I feel like a person. Mm. That's such a powerful description of it. With HRT, you felt whole. Mm. And with surgery, you felt like a human. Yeah. You felt like a person. Yeah. Yeah. Does gender 
mean to you? Where the idea of gender, and I know this is being batted around so much in the media, and you know, this is really at the forefront of public discourse, and there's a lot of heated stuff. But just, I, I wonder, just your experience, like what yeah. and you have lived, so many aspects of this idea of gender, and you know, finally now come home to feeling whole and feeling human. Yeah. So. Well, uh, and I'll, I'll say that wholeness and humanness that that I felt was when everything felt more aligned with my gender. And so, you know, there's there's a couple of camps out there that I think have some validity to them. One is, is gender is real. <laughs> and there's people, very conservative people, a lot of times that really want to make a big deal about that. And I'm here to say that that's true. It's real. It's maybe not the way you might expect. <laughs> like I think, I think your fifth grade biology class isn't quite enough to get you there. <laughs> like you need more information. Gender is very real. None of that. I, I mean, there are people that will argue with me about this, but none of that that happened to me could have happened if gender was just some kind of social construct. And so that's the other group the the other side of that spectrum is gender is just a social construct it's just something we made up no it's not it's i but but a lot of the things that we deal with are pink wasn't always a female color for example barbies like boys can play with barbies and they're still going to be boys that doesn't make them girls i was drawn to barbies because i was a girl <laughs> i mean that's different from that doesn't make that didn't make me a girl or a boy wearing pink clothes doesn't make you a girl or a boy liking pink doesn't you know none of those those are those are all social constructs and that really start that's really part of like for me kind of what started unraveling things for me and like what you know okay i'm tired of following these rules from a pro forma perspective, like I would walk into my closet and look at the clothes in my closet and be devastated. I would literally cry. Like it was depressing for me to go get dressed in the morning. For God's sakes, it's just dumb. Why would you do that to yourself? I did it for years. So yeah, of course, the clothes that are in my closet are socially constructed to be female clothes. If I lived in 17th century Scotland, I would, you know, and I was a male, for example, I would have a kilt on and that looks a lot like a skirt. And I've even had people tell me, well, that's just female clothes. Like you can't wear kilts. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, hello, that is a social construct. So there's a lot about gender that we have that we carry around in our heads that signal gender. That's very much a social construct. But it's not all socially constructed. I think a lot about gender because you know I see this a lot in my practice, and I've thought, you know, if I were in a cave for six months in the dark and I couldn't see myself, I'm just sitting in this cave, would I? How would I know my gender? And I think I don't think I would. I mean, I could tell oh, I have a penis, and but again, that's not that's not gender. Right. But I think it's because again, I've only ever been this. I'm thinking so. I don't like. I don't have any. That's reasonable. I think before, let's go back to that passage that I read in scripture where that was kind of that watershed for me. Before that point, I would say I had lived in that state where I maybe got pushed around a little bit here and there by my mom being like, oh, you're too much this or you're too much that. But as by that point or any really point, I kind of took what she had to say to me with a grain of salt other than just let's 
get along, <laughs> you know, whatever it took to get along. But that wasn't really instructive from a gender perspective. I really did float. I didn't really have a strong sense of gender until that point for myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's probably, I think that's reasonable to, to, to assume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, you know, it's, as you describe it, it, it is sociocultural. It is real. It's as real as anything. And it's so, you know, I love the word ineffable, indescribable. Like, how do you describe it? Which then I think sort of flips the other question, because now we're having a lot of people who say, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm non-gendered or right. I'm non-binary, which is also really interesting because, you know, I, as I've argued gender with my family, we all have some spirited arguments. I said, you know, I could almost argue that because I don't, like if I had to, you know, if I was testifying my gender in a courtroom, and I have to swear, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. <laughs> and I'd say, I'm male. And they'd say, what's your evidence? And I'd be like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. Like, what would I say? Because uh, in some ways, I mean, some of my, you know, I have very dear friends that are female. I'm a therapist. You know, I have a lot. Parts of me are, you know, kind of on the feminine side, the yin side. And then I have some yang stuff. And it's just, it's so interesting. And so then when I think of, um, what does that mean to be non-binary, non-gendered? Because you're someone who early on knew I have a gender and it's not. Well, I don't know that I knew early on. I think that's the point. Like, I think I started thinking about it in terms of a binary once I hit that watershed. Before then, I'm not sure. And and when I first came out, I was, I was like, well, maybe I'm bi-gendered. Like, in fact, I definitely landed there for a while because I could feel the maleness in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a, that's the weirdest thing you're probably going to hear all day today <laughs> when you <laughs> listen to this is, is I felt that maleness in there and I couldn't describe it any other way except to say that, except to use that label. Mm-hmm. And that's really all it is. It's a label. So mm-hmm. we just, we're trying to really, I think this is my opinion, <laughs> just pure opinion now. I think we're trying to just sort it all out and people get upset at labels, but when we label something, our brain goes, ah, yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, for a while, I definitely did feel bi-gendered because I had pushed against that male perspective and male, I'll even say male privilege for sure. I definitely took up male privilege and I use, there was a lot of maleness about me that I had worked on real hard for years because I felt like I had to, and it was hard to let that go. And I didn't feel like I had to let that go. And I felt like that was a part of me, but slowly over time that started to fade. (laughs) Like, like it became pretty clear. Like it was like, Oh yeah, no, I was carrying on. I was carrying that. And that was definitely a part of me and I can still do those things and I don't need to be male. Like that. That's okay. I still know how to like frame a wall. (laughs) Like I don't need to be a guy to do that. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like it's fine. Uh, And I can still be, I can still play the role of father for my children to a degree. I I can't, I, I can't. And I never really did as a male parental unit in their lives. I never really functioned in that way. I functioned as someone who brought some of those more stereotypically female characteristics to the parenting game anyway but i loved being that 
piece of the puzzle for my kids the best that I could. Mm -hmm. And even that was like, yeah, no, I I really wasn't bringing a whole lot of maleness to that. So once I started feeling like I could be really honest with myself and get the right hormones going and just really work through that, through society, through friendships, just kind of living, seeing what that social construct kind of told me back, Mm -hmm. it became pretty clear that it's like, I'm not bi-gendered. So it's a process. And, and I don't know that I should ever really say that it's done and it shouldn't be done and you shouldn't be afraid of it Mm -hmm. because the more, the more I was allowing myself to explore it and let go of things that I felt like should define me and just let things define me as they were, just kind of a weird idea mm-hmm. and hard to follow. But if you think that through for a minute, if you if you just let yourself define yourself as you are, not as you should be, then you'll find a lot of peace there. And the, and the labeling tends to help. And I wouldn't call myself bi-gendered anymore mm-hmm. because I let myself kind of fall through that process. Mm-hmm. Are there parts of you that, I don't know if it would be a memory or, you know, um, but are there parts of you that still feel or seem a little male? You know, so you've, you know, you turned and um, you've done surgery, you know, anatomically, hormonally, you're a woman. Right. Yet you, socioculturally, were seen as male for a long time. You... I mean, so are there vestiges of that that, you know, you talked about male privilege mm. and just sort of there are ways of being in the world that are very male. And I guess that's maybe different than knowing what male privilege is. But I, do you understand my question? Like, are there still shadings of yourself, of your gender? You're like, oh, yeah, there is. There's still vestiges of male. Or do you feel like this has fully brought you into womanhood? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Sometimes I grapple with that question, actually, because I don't know. I don't know for sure. What I can say about that is, I, I, I mean, I want to say that there aren't because that's easy. <laughs> it's, it's easy to explain. It's easy to live through. It's easy to understand for people. And I, so, yeah, I, I think... At the end of the day, I have to believe that there are some vestiges. Every once in a while, I'm like, ooh, that's a really burly thought. <laughs> like, that's a really guy kind of thinking. And it doesn't happen very often, and it never really did. <laughs> but every once in a while, I'm like, yeah, that was testosterone-driven. Or, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll joke with my friends. I'll be like, yeah, I mean, I had a healthy dose of testosterone poisoning, <laughs> you know, it's, which is not fair to men. I just want to I just want to embrace that right uh, now. It's not fair to men. Because we talk about muscle memory. You mm-hmm. could imagine that there could be, like, psyche memory, that there's almost ways of thinking and being that are, you know, more male that you just – practiced for so long that they just became kind of second nature even though they weren't your nature 
that I just wonder if sometimes, as you said, you find yourself like, oh my gosh, what is that burly? <laughs> what is that? Like that where did is, that come from? Where did that come from? Like that yeah. is- <laughs> um, maybe every once in a while. It doesn't happen very often, surprisingly enough, which I think is why I feel pretty comfortable not using the bi-gender terminology or say like um, demi-female or demi-male or uh, demi-boy, demi-girl, whatever. Anyway, I feel comfortable not using any of those other labels, just female, because for me, that doesn't really happen very often, every once in a while. And it's not like, because I think, I think, because my maleness was so forced, it was, that never really reared its ugly head all that much. Mostly for me, it was just, it was kind of just letting that programming go of like, oh, I'm supposed to be X, Y, and Z. I'm supposed to do or be or think or say X, Y, and Z. I thought I would have to learn how to act female and and maybe people look at me and go, she doesn't have that figured out yet. (laughs) But that comes, it feels like that comes pretty natural to me and nobody really calls me on the carpet too much for that. So yeah, which is interesting because I was worried about that at first because I didn't, I didn't want to like take up the mantle. Here's something. If you don't mind, I don't know how much time you got. But, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll probably start wrapping up in a minute. But I, I want to hear. Yeah, this yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things when I first came out, and I'm like, "What do I do with this? I am terrified that I am going to come across like I'm pretending to be a woman, and I did enough pretending to be a man that I'm not interested in that." So I don't, but I don't want to do it wrong and I don't want to be offensive. Like I was really worried about like going into female spaces. So like, I understand the whole issue that some people have with trans women being in, in traditionally woman spaces or bathrooms, et cetera. Like I get it as a philosophy because when I was going through my transition, I really wanted to be sensitive to that idea of like, well, maybe I'm really not, you know, I, I really had to grapple with that. And now I know I am, but it, I had to grapple with it. And before I really figured that out, it's like, well, I don't want to have to learn how to do that. And so, and I don't want to offend people. And, but it, it, none of that really what I found over time was none of that really panned out. Like I didn't really have to learn how to be a woman and maybe I suck at it. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm all right. Like, you know, I don't want to take up, I don't want to bring male privilege into that space, for example. And I, I do feel like what I'll say is I do feel like I learned how to operate with male privilege for sure. <laughs> and, and I used to fight that concept hardcore. Like, no, there's no such thing as privilege, blah, blah, blah. We're all equal. Great, fine. And I definitely had privilege. I definitely picked it up. I definitely used it. And that helped me get to where I am today, in fact, in my career, et cetera, to some degree. And I can embrace all of that and say that happened. And I definitely don't want to bring that into female spaces. And I definitely don't want to bring that into spaces where I'm representing women. I don't want to talk over women. I don't want, I want to make sure that I'm a good feminist, <laughs> you know, and in all of, in all of its glory, I need to learn those things. And I think everyone does like, because we're just so ingrained in our culture, men and women are ingrained in our culture to be anti-feminist uh, to a large degree. And so 
I hesitate to use all of that language in those words because they're so charged in our, our culture. But really all I'm saying is like, we really need to listen to women when they speak. What do I take from Autumn's story? Well, first, that gender is real. And it's a sociological construct. And it's a way to signal identity. And it's influenced by hormones. And gender identity and presentation can evolve over time. And it's all super complicated. Almost a hall of mirrors. For the more thoughtfully we try to use words to describe our gender, the more we find that words fail us, and we fall back on this sense of knowing. Maybe gender is an ineffable, indescribable thing. And for this reason, maybe we all need to try to have more empathy and compassion for each other as we try to sort this whole thing out. Mm-hmm.